0: Good morning, my dear family. How is everyone today? Good, it's feast day. Praise God, first feast day of Lent. And we are abundantly grateful for the feast day that is today. Let's jump into the text. Okay, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. That's where we've been over the last couple of weeks. Luke chapter 9. So go ahead and jump there if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, i love to give you one for free after our gathering. We are going to start reading today in verse 28 and read all the way to verse 36. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. Hear the word of the Lord. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray, and as He was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Now, real quick, keep in mind that this moment... And these few moments here in Luke 9 are really the hinge of the whole gospel narrative, according to Luke. So there's kind of a a shift happening in Luke's gospel account in Luke 9. All right. So just kind of have that awareness as you study the scriptures and kind of get a feel for what's happening in the narrative. There is a shift. This is a fulcrum moment in the Lucan account. Verse 32, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, which is a consistent theme in Peter's life, not knowing what he was saying, blurted out. I love that. It says he blurted out. Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters, or the original language um, is actually tabernacles. Let's make three tabernacles as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us this morning as we jump in to the scriptures together. Father, I do feel a bit overcome by your presence this morning in a unique way. I'm grateful that you are Emmanuel, Emmanuel that you are God with us. I get a sense today that there are people in this space that need a divine touch from you, that need a divine revelation, that maybe need some healing, inner healing, maybe even physical healing this morning. Matter of fact, if that is you this morning, if you feel like you need some healing this morning, just lift a hand. Let's lift a hand, acknowledge it. Yes, yes, yes. God, I pray right now for healing for these hands that have been raised. Healing right now. Healing, we ask for these hands that have been lifted. We are asking, oh God, to heal. And I pray that today as we worship you in song and in liturgy and in opening the text, that it would be a pleasing aroma to you. And that in our worship, you would change us. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. Amen. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And it marked the start of the season of Lent. If you did not know, the word Lent comes from a Germanic word that means long day long day. It is in this 40-day season that we as the global church across the world recognize a couple of things. First, we recognize the human condition, the perpetual injustice systemically in our world and in our own heart, our own sense of brokenness our own sense of bent towards rebellion, a commitment of the self often to go against the vision of flourishing that God has, to take into our own hands what we believe to be true, right, and beautiful. We recognize our tendencies, and we recognize our deep need for healing, restoration, redemption, rescue, and ultimately wholeness, or in the language of the scriptures, peace. The season that we are in reflects on the wilderness motif throughout the entire narrative of the scriptures. In particular, the 40 days that Jesus spends being tempted in the wilderness or in the desert. Lent is a reminder for all of us of our disintegration, just as in the dust or the sand of the desert and our innate need for integration. Because there are aspects of our person that are separated out or cast away from our whole self. And we need a sense of total integration where our mind, heart, body, relationships are all integrated together as one whole. And it is in the Lenten season that we recognize this need for integration. We are reminded on Ash Wednesday that from dust we came, and to dust we will return. The very idea of dust, friends, speaks to our disintegration and our need for integration. But in Lent, we don't just recognize. We actually repent. We change direction. It is one thing for you and I to recognize our sin, and it is another thing to repent from it and to quite literally change direction. Esau Macaulay, who's a New Testament scholar at Wheaton College, who has a little great book on Lent, which we have a couple of copies in the bookstore for you. There are more on the way if those get gone. But he says this about Lent. He says, Lent is inescapably about repenting. Repentance is a change in direction. A spirit-empowered turning around. Repentance, then, is the first step we make toward God. But to turn toward God, we must turn away from something else. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we have been in a very short mini-series on the transfiguration of Jesus, as we just read from Luke chapter 9, entitled, Brilliance the glory and beauty of jesus and it has sandwiched us between epiphany the season of manifestation and the divinity of jesus and lent a recognition of our brokenness and of our human frailty now i thought uh, both vania and josh did an excellent job did you guys not think so someone told me a couple of days ago they're like you got some big shoes to fill uh, because Venia and Josh did a fantastic job over the last couple of weeks looking at this text, looking at this passage from different vantage points and angles, in particular providing clarity and some theological definitions around these notions of glory and beauty. Vania in week one kind of laid a very short biblical theology of glory, looking at the nature of glory and its connection to beauty. And then last week, Josh, who I thought gave a fantastic definition of beauty, which I would let you, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to it, because he gets really philosophical, I think, by providing his own definition. Um, it's fantastic. And talking about thin places and the, the nature of thin places. Um, they did a wonderful job. Um, and I, I have felt the need for us as a community to lean into the necessity of beauty and glory as it pertains to our formation, as it pertains to our transformation at that. But here's what's so wild about this story in in Luke chapter 9, and it's recorded in Matthew and Mark as well, is that it wasn't intended to be wild. What's Fascinating about the transfiguration is that it wasn't intended to be wild. This was just an ordinary prayer hike with Jesus. This was just an ordinary prayer retreat to Victory Mountain Camp. That's all it was. Up a mountain. Most... Folks in the ancient tradition of the church believe it to be Mount Tabor in southwest Galilee. It's about 1900 feet in elevation. To give you an idea, very similar to Pilot Mountain. Anyone ever hiked up to Pilot Mountain before or just driven to the top in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> yes. Some of you are like, why are you walking? When you can drive. <laughs> um, very similar though. It kind of rises out of a flat land and there's this round dome called Mount Tabor. There's actually a high school in Winston-Salem called. Mount Tabor, and guess what? It's named after this mountain in Galilee. So that being said, it's just this ordinary hike that Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John, his inner circle with him on. This was just a consistent practice. To be honest, if you read the scriptures, a consistent practice that Jesus had with his disciples, which I think reveals to us that prayer is the setting for divine disclosure. Prayer is the setting for divine disclosure. And that we never know when an ordinary prayer practice will become a glory-filled encounter. You never know. When an ordinary prayer rhythm, you in your prayer closet, or in your laundry room, or on that bench, or in that chair, or on a walk, you never know when that ordinary prayer practice might become a glory-filled encounter. One of the reasons why you got to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. This was just an ordinary prayer hike and prayer retreat, but as we do see in this narrative in particular, prayer was the doorway into the glory. Prayer was and is the doorway into glory or into divine beauty. All verse 28 says in Luke chapter 9 is that he took them up on a mountain to pray. He did not say to them, hey guys, um, let's go up to the mountain. I'm going to put on a firework display of glory and blow your socks off. He didn't have this plan for months. Oh yeah, I took some uh, time off in the summer from work um, because we're going to go and experience the majesty and divine power and beauty and light of God on top of a mountain. It's not what happened. He just took them up on a mountain to pray. Prayer is an ordinary means for extraordinary encounters. Adrian Von Kahn has this to say about prayer. We too know that breath is to the body what prayer is to the spirit. If we do not breathe, we die physically. If we do not pray, we expire spiritually. In this story... Jesus' inner essence and his divinity is made manifest in the physical. It says that he's transfigured, but it's not his whole essence. It is his outward appearance that is transfigured. What is happening is that his inner essence or his nature is being made manifest into the physical world. The invisible is becoming visible. This is a foretaste of future glory a foretaste of the consummation of all things, and in some ways a foretaste of the resurrection. It says that his outward appearance or his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. No amount of bleach could make his clothes as white as they were in this moment. Then Moses and Elijah just show up. (laughs) Two of the most important figures in Jewish history. No big deal. Here they are few hundred years later, and the text says, as they show up, three of them, on this mountaintop, that they were glorious to see. They were glorious to see. The Greek word, as Venia mentioned in week one, for glory is this word doxa. Doxa, D-O-X-A. And doxa in the Greek can mean a few things, as she alluded to. Brightness, splendor, or brilliance. But the Hebrew word for glory is kavud. Kavud. And it means the same, but also there is an emphasis in particular on weight and or heaviness. Meaning that the glory of the Lord isn't just bright, it is thick, it is heavy, it is weighty. You ever been into a room before or a space and you're like, the atmosphere is very heavy. Feels like there is some extra volume or mass in this room. This is another side of the glory of the Lord. But in essence, glory is when the power of the invisible God collides with the beauty of God in the visible world. The power of the invisible God collides with the beauty of God in the visible world. It is something that we see. This is why Moses in Exodus 33 prays, Show me your glory. Let me see it. Let me experience. Let me touch it. Let me feel it. Show me your glory. It's a... Visible representation of the power of God colliding with beauty in the visible world. Now, in the Old Testament, this is called the Shekinah. How many charismatic folks in the house have heard that word a time or two? That Shekinah glory. <laughs> yes. Anybody? Yes. The people who are not raising their hands, they grew up Presbyterian, Methodist, or Episcopalian. They are like, Shekinah, what? I don't know Shekinah. No, 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 no. But Shekinah just simply means the manifest glory of the Lord. The tangible presence. It's palpable. You walk into a room, you're like, whoa, there is something in here. It is weighty. It is experienced. Glory is experienced in the visible world, specifically in our senses. It is the invisible becoming visible, the intangible becoming tangible, the hidden becoming revealed. It is quite literally God on display. So when we say we glorify your name, this this just simply means we are putting God on display. His glory is him on display. And when we pray things like, I want more of your presence... Well, let me, let me put it on that real quick. You can't have more. He's already given all of it. But what you can ask for is for him to show us his glory. And often when we pray, we want more presence. We're actually praying, show us your glory. I want glory. When we gather on Sundays, I want to experience the glory of the Lord. When we seek his face at Renew, I want to experience the glory of the Lord. This is my prayer, and this is what it means to seek after it. And every time that the glory of God is revealed, it is something experienced, as Josh mentioned, in our senses. Notice the emphasis here on seeing. Seeing. This is where beauty comes in. Beauty has a way of engaging our senses. And throughout the scriptures, it seems that there are two senses that we have as humans that must be engaged in order for us to be changed and transformed. Two, seeing and hearing. Seeing and hearing. They obviously are physical, but there's also a metaphorical connection and symbolic representation as well. But glory is always connected to these two, seeing and hearing. Now in this moment in the story, we really put the emphasis on Jesus. Jesus is obviously on display in all of his glory and splendor. And he's you know, lit up like a Christmas tree. But he isn't lit up for himself. He knows who he is. His radiance or his brilliance or his glory is on display for Peter, James, and John. And they end up saying to him, it is wonderful or full of wonder for us to be here. Or it is good for us to be here. Or it is beautiful for us to be here. Now, what's fascinating is somehow they almost slept through it. If you read the text, they're like knocked out. Maybe they had some Benadryl or something. I don't know. But they were croaked on that mountain. I mean, after a long hike, maybe they weren't in shape. I don't know. But they're knocked out of sleep. And then they wake up and then the glory of God is just boom, there it is. But the glory had already started if you read the text. It's kind of fascinating to me. But they're like, it's beautiful for us to be here. Now, in, in 1964, the Spanish painter Salvador Dali actually made a painting depicting this scene. Now, if you go read the biography of Salvador Dali, he was a very interesting cat, I will say this. He was a Picasso disciple, super eccentric, into, like, surrealism, art, whatnot. Uh, very interesting. But he did make a very unique painting of this moment. And I just looked at this this week, and I was like, wow, there's another one by Raphael from hundreds of years ago. It's You know, not as cool, to be honest. This is just way more, like, grunge and hipster and very Greensboro, you know? Um, Like, this is on Spring Garden Street. I am pretty sure this is a mural downtown or on Spring Garden. Um, But I saw it, and I'm like, you know what I noticed in the painting and in reading the narrative? Is that something is happening to these three guys. Something isn't just happening to Jesus. Something's happening to these three disciples. It isn't just Jesus being transformed. It is also the three. I mean, honestly, how could you or I ever live the same again after encountering this firework display of glory, of experiencing the majesty and splendor, the manifest glory of the Lord Jesus? How could you live the same? I mean, there are movies that we have seen that changed us forever sporting events that have changed us forever. Last week when the Wolf Pack beat Carolina, changed forever. <laughs> but we won't talk about what happened yesterday, okay? So, I mean, seriously, like lives change forever because of moments that we have. And they're experiencing the divine glory. Now, in other gospel accounts, it says that they fell on their face in a kind of awestruck worship in this almost like fear or terror because it's so brilliant and so beautiful and so bright. They're like, this is amazing and I'm terrified. Something's happening to these three. How could they ever be the same again? And it made me think of this. Physical beauty, the visible glory, transforms the part of us that we can't see. That we can't see. What is happening in the physical is actually happening in the non-physical inside of Peter, James, and John. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounds on this in connection with the desires of the human heart. Something that we actually can't see in the physical. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 through 23... Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. This is a metaphor for your inner being or your whole person or your soul. So what you and I give focus to or our attention to in the visible has a way of transforming the invisible part of you. What they are seeing in the physical has to be changing something in the non-physical. A perfect example of how this works is the light on that little device or that um, little digital rectangle called your phone. When we stare and give constant attention to the light on our phone, that physical behavior does something to the non-physical part of us. It reveals to us an aspect of our heart and our mind. When we exercise... It has staggering benefits on your emotional health, something that you cannot see. When someone hugs you, it lifts your spirit. Sometimes we need someone to hug us for seven seconds. Hold it. Hold it. Just watch Robbie and Corey give each other a hug. (laughs) Something is happening not just in the physical, it's also in the non-physical as well serotonins being released right <laughs> this is a moment something in the physical impacting something in the non-physical your physical and embodied self or as dallas willer calls it your power pack for living is deeply connected to that which is invisible this is why, and I've shared before Basil Vander Kolk's book, "The um, Body Keeps the Score," continues to be a New York Times bestseller. You cannot separate your physical body from your non-physical self. Even in a dualistic world, you can't. Things that we feel in our physical impact are non-physical. And what Peter, James and John are seeing in the physical is transforming what they can't see in the non-physical. Now, as they are standing there in total shock, total shock, they are engulfed or overshadowed by a cloud. And this cloud was symbolic of the tangible manifest presence of God. I wouldn't even say symbolic. It just had a certain literal weight to it all throughout the scriptures. It also, in the Old Testament, was symbolic of guidance and direction. The cloud was symbolic of guidance and direction. Specifically connected to the exodus. And coincidentally, this is what Jesus is talking about with Moses and Elijah. His exodus, or his departure. This is a conversation that they're having Um, Just, you know, in splendor, brilliance, and glory, they're talking about his exodus. There's a few different kind of theological meanings that you could unpack on your own, but fascinating that there's connection. It was the cloud that guided and directed the Israelites once they were out of Egyptian captivity and set free. Exodus is always connected to freedom. Freedom. It means departure. It could mean death or departure, but it's also uniquely connected to freedom and being set free. And this cloud is what is guiding them through the wilderness as they move towards a greater sense of freedom. And sure enough, as Peter, James, and John are standing there, a voice, the Greek is literally phone, which I think is interesting, phone, ring, right? Comes from the cloud. Why are all these like new age techie references here in Luke 9, the cloud and a phone? All right, this is weird. Uh, That was on the fly, not in my notes. Like that was on the fly. Uh, But it gives a sort of directive. The voice from the cloud gives a sort of directive. Verse 35. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. First they saw, now they hear. First they experienced, and now they are to listen. First they encounter, but now they are to obey. The glory and the beauty of Jesus is nothing but a catalyst for our obedience and transformation. Glory, friends, that doesn't produce a change in behavior may not be glory. It may not be majesty or divine brilliance because when you encounter the glory of Lord and his beauty... It forces you by nature to change your behavior, either for the good or maybe for the bad. But you won't remain neutral. None of us today are neutral. We're all listening to something or someone. We all are a disciple or student of someone. No one in here is totally autonomous. You're following a directive from someone or something. But this glory in this moment that they are experiencing comes to a close with a voice that simply says, listen to him. How ordinary and anticlimactic. Okay, this was awesome. Wow. I mean, most amazing moment of my life. Um, What should we do next? Just listen to him. Okay. Um, But... This is actually our charge during the wilderness of life. To follow the cloud, as it were. To listen and obey to our glorious rabbi, because he's worthy and he's displayed his brilliance already once before. And he continues to do so by way of the Spirit, even now. When we do listen, it leads us through, all of us, a sort of Exodus freedom. When you follow the Spirit, you actually live into freedom. Freedom. Freedom from yourself. Some of us are the most in bondage, not to the outside world, but to our inside self. And we need to be set free. This cloud takes us through the wilderness. Freedom, friends, requires the wilderness. Exodus requires the wilderness. This is where the glory cloud was first experienced. It was in the wilderness, was the first time. And would you not know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul emphatically proclaims with an exclamation mark, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When we listen to the cloud, as it were, we listen to our rabbi, there is freedom. Freedom. But in a postmodern world that we live in, freedom primarily has to do with freedom to do whatever we please. the historic and ancient notion of freedom is actually freedom from constraints to be able to pursue the common good. It's not so much freedom for, it's freedom from. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And as we read this story, what we tend to do is we tend to isolate it as some sort of end goal or destination. Like, honestly, why is the transfiguration not at the end of Luke? Like, not, why is it post-resurrection? but rather it's at the center. We tend to isolate it as some sort of goal or destination. And though there will be a time, according to Habakkuk, where the earth, the entire earth, will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord, this is only in Luke chapter 9. And to be honest, I would encourage you to read the narrative right after this. It gets a little crazy. There's a demon-possessed boy The disciples have been trying to pray to cast out the demon, and they can't. It's a whole thing. And then Jesus eventually casts the demon out, and then he starts talking about the cost of following him. Oh, and by the way, before he took Peter, James, and John to the top of this mountain, he also called Peter Satan and said, if you you aren't willing to give up your soul, if you aren't willing to lose it, you'll never find it. What good is it for a man to gain the world but to forfeit his soul he presents the cost he says actually i got to go to jerusalem to go to the cross i'm not going to put myself on display in front of the masses i'm going to the cross this moment happens in between those two worlds it isn't the end goal it is a means to an end this is only in luke chapter 9 and we tend to forget a very key verse that binds this moment and what comes after. It's in Luke 9, verse 37. It says this, the next day after they had come down the mountain. Lent is about coming down the mountain. Lent is about the next day and life at the bottom of the mountain in the valley. Because where do you live? You live at the bottom of the mountain. Lent reminds us of the next day. Every major encounter you've had with God that was euphoric and transcendent, there was always a next day where your alarm clock goes off at 6 a.m. You got kids that that are screaming bloody murder, There are fires to put out at work, or you have an exam to take. There's always the next day. But it's those ordinary prayer practices, as I said, that can lead us to extraordinary moments that help us get through and into the next day. And this is what's happening. But Lent is all about the next day and life at the bottom Of the mountain. They don't stay at the top of the mountain. You can't stay at the top of the mountain. And as we descend down the mountain and ask, How do we go about the next day? We just had this crazy moment happen. How do we go about the next day? We see that the response is simple, as we have already noted listen to Him. As we journey as a community through the dissension and valley of Lent, our objective is simple. Listen to him. Listen to him. Follow him. This season is all about listening and following in the dissent. Now, listening has at least three different connotations. Three different connotations. The first is to listen is to give attention. To give attention. We talked about attention in our abiding teaching series. One definition I read was very well said, I thought, which was to hear with intention. That's what it means to listen. To hear with intention. To listen is to give our attention, our focus. The second is to listen is to understand. To listen is to understand. How many times have you been in a conversation with someone and they say to you, you are not listening to me. All the spouses are like nudging the other. Anybody struggle to listen? You just are not a good listener. I'll be honest, I'm not. I'm distracted. Do not put me in a sports bar. Like I am distracted. Jordan will be like, let's have a date, but there can't be TVs. That's what she says. Why? Because often I can't listen. I can hear, but I'm not always going to be able to give attention or understand. To listen is to give attention. To listen is to understand, to comprehend. And the third is to listen is to obey. Very simple. To listen is to obey. If you listen to your doctor's words and advice, you will follow your doctor's words and advice. If you listen to your father or mother, you will obey what your father or mother have to say. Von Kamm says, the Holy Spirit guides the course of our spiritual maturation, but we must have the courage to follow the directives that we receive. To aspire after Christian ideals is futile unless we try to embody them realistically in daily life. In other words, to aspire for glory and transcendence and not obey in the mundane is futile. I'm pretty sure that this display of glory got their attention. Let's be honest. It, it, it got their attention. It got their focus. But it wasn't just for show. It wasn't, for, it wasn't art for art's sake. It was purposefully orchestrated in order that obedience would follow, in order that their own transformation would, in fact, occur. Now, when Moses encountered the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai, he didn't observe the glory or just observe the radiance. He reflected the glory. He mirrored the radiance to the point where he actually had to put a veil over his face. And to behold the glory and the beauty of the Lord is actually to become the glory and beauty of the Lord by way of obedience. Here's a little formula for you. Encounter plus listening equals becoming. Encounter plus listening equals becoming. When you experience and then you obey, you will become. Some of us in this room today, we aren't praying, so we aren't encountering. The Lord knocks, but our world is so loud that we can't hear him. Some of us aren't listening We are just reading, and that is my greatest temptation. Some of us are great readers, not good listeners of the Spirit. So the question then becomes, who or what are we becoming, as we have shared before? What are we to actually transform into as the people of God? And this is where we begin our descent this morning. The next verse, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, after verse 17, like we just read regarding freedom and the Spirit of the Lord, is this, and it's uniquely connected to the transfiguration. Paul says, So all of us who have had that veil removed, which, by the way, uh, in verse 17 prior to, and I mentioned verse 16 is the one about freedom, verse 17, says that it's only done by turning to the Lord. The only way a veil is removed is by turning to the Lord or repenting towards the Lord. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. It's one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, really in all the Bible. The one that we behold in glory, the one whose glory we are to reflect and radiate, there is an inner transfiguration and transformation happening within us that is by the Spirit, making us into his glorious image. Or as the ESV says, from one degree of glory to another degree of glory from the shadow of the law to the actual image of Jesus. Now, Jesus, by the way, is the image of the invisible God, from Colossians 1.15. And as we are transformed over time in process, we begin to more accurately reflect the glory of the Lord, just as a pool reflects the sun or as a mirror reflects a face. Quick note here on a theology of the image of God or the Imago Dei. There's a lot of debate around this, but I think this is deeply important. Human beings are not made as the image of God. It is not something that we possess. Rather, humans are made in the image of God. This means innately we are to function as icons, mirrors, shadows, or symbols representing the true image and model, which is Jesus. We are the mirror. We are not the image, we are the mirror that reflects the image. Mildred Banks Weinkoop, was a mid-century theologian, says, image everywhere in the Old Testament usage carries the idea of a concrete substance representing some idea or prototype. It is definite conformity to a pattern or mold. However, due to sin, the mirror somehow became cracked. Some reflection and glory still remains, but it has become distorted and disordered. We have, in the language of Romans, fallen short of the glory of God. But by the gracious work of Jesus, the unleashing of the invisible spirit, and our submission by faith to that work, we are transformed over time into being a restored mirror reflecting his image more accurately. Humans were always meant to be the primary vehicle for God to reveal his invisible presence into the visible and physical world. When God said creation was very good or very beautiful, it came right after the creation of human image bearers. In our process of transformation, the very reason that we encounter and listen is to become people of increasing glory and beauty, mirroring the person of Jesus more accurately. So, what does it actually mean to image Jesus? It doesn't mean that we personify Jesus in personality. Instead, it means we represent him in character. Some of us think that to become like Jesus is actually to become like his personality. Well, no, you're not a first century rabbi. Uh, You're not living in Jerusalem or in Galilee or Capernaum. You are here and you are a mother or a father or a student or a husband or a friend or nurse or teacher whatever it may be what you are to become is to become like him in character we are to re- represent him in character now dallas willard says this about character i had to get a willard to quote in today character is the internal overall structure of the self that is revealed by our long run patterns of behavior it is from our character that our actions more or less automatically arise And what God gets out of our life and your life is the person that you become. That's also what you and others get as well. Now, in the ancient world, a character was a marked engraving. a Marked engraving, or a tool for engraving. And transformation into an increasing glory is literally Christ engraving you with his stamp. It is him characterizing you. The more we behold his glory, the more we become his glory. The more we gaze on his beauty, the more it compels us to represent that beauty and goodness in this world. In order that as we listen and embody his instruction in the next days of our life, people will actually see brilliance and radiance. Because guess where people need to see brilliance and radiance? Not on the mountaintop, but in the valley. In the next day, they need to see brilliance and radiance. Not on our face, as with Moses, but through our life. Through the way in which we live. And our greatest challenge in the modern era is a gap, what Weinkoop calls a credibility gap, between what we believe or what we uh, hold to be beliefs and how we behave and how we live. Those two worlds must become closer and closer to being one. And my prayer for us is that we increasingly become a people of brilliance, displaying the goodness and glory of the Lord in the next days of our life. Let's pray together this morning.